like introduce yourself you will need to get all yeah. the uh credentials and stuff out of the way sure i'll let me get that out of the way <laughs> so i'm i'm sitting in my office at the university of mississippi which is in oxford about 80 miles south of memphis uh i'm a i'm what we call a full professor just professor of english and southern studies i've been here since 2002 so i'm almost two decades here yeah. um and uh i'm also uh, a a music teacher and performer, uh, harmonica player. And at this point, I'm a harmonica player who also plays foot drums, which I've been doing for about 10 years. Um, and so the tour that you asked about, and, and I've written a number of books, written, I think, half a dozen books at this point, starting with a memoir called Mr. Satan's Apprentice, a blues memoir, which came out in 1998, which was about my long experience, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, yeah with a man named Sterling McGee, Sterling Mr. Satan McGee, a relationship that began on the streets of Harlem and went in like amazing directions. Um, it, but uh, my latest book is called Who's Blues? Facing Up to Race and the Future of the Music. And I put that on my desk, remind myself what it was about, because like most professors, you know, I can't even remember what I taught last term. Um, <laughs> and my, my interests are always they're moving on. In fact, I'm not even sure I'll write more blues books. I feel like I've done enough after doing basically six books in that direction. Um, but you asked about a tour. And so I definitely want to talk about that. I also want to talk about my son's brand new rental euphonium. So let's go to low brass at some point, because I know you're <laughs> yeah. a tuba, a tuba guy. Yeah. And, I, and I, and I want to talk about my son's extraordinary musical journey, because it's really kind of crazy. Um, but today we got a euphonium in the mail. Um, wow. and he can play it like a virtuoso from the get-go, never having tried one before. Wow. That's a long story, but let me, that's the home life. That's the home life. Yeah. I am part of a blues trio at this point, and we've managed to make two tours in the last couple of months. The trio is called Sirod and the Blues Doctors. The Blues Doctors is a duo that I've had for nine years, nine years, since 2012 with um, another Ole Miss professor who, I, and then another, I would call him a legit blues player, a guy who's been in Mississippi for 35 years, a guitar player. So we, we, we've called ourselves the Blues Doctors and made a couple of albums and, and toured some as that. Um, but we have a new lead singer and the story of how he came together with us and recorded a debut album, which Blues Blast has lit, nominated as best new artist debut wow. album, um, an album called Come Together. How we've come together as Sir Rod and the Blues Doctors is a story in its own right. And interestingly enough, it's completely connected with the other story, the Satan and Adam story. So I don't know how we want to unpack all this. Oh, man. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, man, I, I've, uh, um, I've really enjoyed driving to that album. Uh, I don't know why specifically. Um, I, like, I'm one of those people uh, where like the music hits differently depending on setting uh, as well. And mm -hmm. something about the album uh, in the car and like while I'm cooking is cool. uh, awesome. It's just, it's just, so I just wanted to like, I, I've just been, I've been like, you know, listening to it front and back uh, since we right. talked like what, like a month ago. Um, but yeah, no, I, you, you can uh, start 
However, and I'm because I'm actually I'm I'm kind of curious if if you don't yeah. mind, like sure, sure um, anyway. like it, to to me, you're so interesting that I don't. I don't, I'm not sure if I've ever met anyone who's very deep in the music world and the academia world, not because like the, it's, it's like, a, you know, mm. uh, I, I think that the, it's the combination of, of, I think that the energy that's in those worlds, I feel like the energy is very different in those very worlds, yeah. Um, yeah. especially the blues genre too, where like a, a large part of that genre is like embracing just like being free and speaking your mind. And then, you know, you get into the world of academia where it, I wouldn't yeah. say it's the polar opposite, but it's not quite like that. So I'm just, I'm, I'm, if you wouldn't mind, like kind of like explaining your, your origin in terms of how you're, yeah. you got into those things and how you're able to navigate like mentally, like going in and out of those two worlds. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of strange, and and one of the stranger things is that if I were to cut back to 1994, um, the act that I'd been part of for eight years that started on the streets of Harlem by that point had made two CDs and was a touring act, sort of on the blues circuit, and in the fall of 1994, as a member of this touring blues duo Satan and Adam, I went back to Princeton's PhD program. And for the next four years, I was simultaneously being like a weekend warrior and doing summer tours and holding down three seminars a term and doing all my papers. And so think about that. And think of, so literally we would be going off on the road, my partner and I and his wife in the back seat and our amps. We'd go up from New York to Portsmouth, New Hampshire or Portland, Maine or down to the Jewish mother at Virginia Beach. And on the way home, I'd be reading Adorno in the front seat. <laughs> while we're driving home from a blues gig. So, yeah, I mean, there were moments when it was, and reading Adorno on jazz, for example, and Adorno's crazy when it comes to jazz. It's like, he saw jazz as like the assembly line leading to the Holocaust, kind of like you're you're marching to your death because of the beat somehow. It's this horrible thing. It's like mechanized, completely misunderstood jazz. And so I'm arguing with Adorno in my head with the material that I had at hand being last night's gig at the press room in Portsmouth where we had everybody dancing, you know, and... And, and, and we're doing some drinking and we're having just a, a good time. But yes, deep in the groove. So you're right, they're two entirely different worlds. I think if I was going to give somebody a hint of sort of how that came about, um, you know, I started playing harmonica as, as a 16-year-old high school senior, um, kind of a nerdy guy. I was the townie at my local day school in mm-hmm. downstate New York, Rockland County, a place called Congers, which nobody's ever heard of really. Um, but I, I got into the Jay Giles band. My dad was a jazz uh, record collector, among other things. He was a painter, but he collected jazz records. And I got into the Jay Giles band, which the song like Whammer Jammer, that harmonica instrumental, had a lot of kind of high, high tempo kind of boogie woogie stuff. And my father, that was one of the kinds of musics that I'd gotten from my father. I stole a lot of his 78s and just played him and played him and played him. It was kind of a latency period in my, as a tween. So as a 16-year-old, I started playing this instrument and very quickly realized... I mean, I was buying everything I could find at the Nanuet Mall, but there's, there's a limit to what kind of blues shows up there. And so it's Clapton and B.B. King and Freddie King, the, you know, Freddie King circa 1974 when he's doing, I think, Texas Flyer. And there's the Butterfield Blues Band and Sonny Terry. So there's a sort of range of stuff. I'm kind of coming into the blues world as it might manifest in the record bins at a suburban mall, yeah. basically. Wow. I had not seen live blues until I saw the Jay Giles Band with James Cotton opening. 
uh, as a as a 17-year-old, uh, kind of the spring of that year when I've been playing for six or seven months. But but the the music for me was a combination of sort of energy and at sort of self-expression, but it was also, especially when it was B.B. King and, and Clapton, Have You Ever Loved a Woman? It was sort of losing a first girlfriend. So it was a very kind of immature, I could say sort of white suburban way of understanding the music, but it was also a broken heart, which is a universal language when you mm. lose that first woman that you love, when yeah. they sort of make up for all that's absent in you, that's, that wow. all that you're not. And, and so the music showed me that there was a, sort of a way back from that broken heart. And what's fascinating is that I then got lucky in college. I was in a, a I played guitar in a band, a sort of jazz rock fusion band where I was the token blues guy. <laughs> and we had a, a guy who played a bass like um, Jocko and we had an incredible keyboard player and two horn players and uh, a pretty good drummer. <laughs> Kemi, Kem, a Kemi grad student, but we were all undergrads at Princeton. This is like Princeton, and, you know, it's the, the, we were called Spiral, named after a song by the Crusaders. That was, the Crusaders would be the sort of token kind of stuff. Mm. And uh, as a member of that band, I got a sort of amazing, a, a beautiful woman, girlfriend, a class above me. And I had a five-year thing with her that was just fantastic, except Except, except she had a habit of kind of occasionally sleeping with other guys. Uh. So I, I, I had a perfect woman to sort of cultivate the blues. But at that point, I had put the blues away. Yeah. And I was a grad student at Columbia. So I was kind of thinking I had my whole thing together. And I, was, I wanted to be a literary journalist like Malcolm Cowley or Edmund Wilson. I, I, was, I considered myself kind of an anti-neoconservative guy. So I yeah. was sort of progressive in a sense, anti-nuclear war, because it was the period when there was a lot of nuclear fear around. And, and then finally that relationship ended. I've sometimes described it as sort of like the, a, the, the repeated A line of a blues. It's like, you got, you've got a girlfriend, somebody takes her away. Yeah. You got a girlfriend and, and, and it lasts twice as long and it's twice as intense and then somebody takes her away. Yeah. And at that point, I just got sick in, I, I'm not gonna curse, but I got very effing tired of graduate school. Yeah. And at that point, interestingly enough, I had cultivated a kind of disillusionment with Western civilization. I looked at the Columbia University Library. I said, it was just in New York two, 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 three weeks ago, I think. And I looked at the Columbia University Library. And, you know, it was all white men, sort of the names Cicero, Plato, and all those names, Aristotle, across the top of the Columbia Library. This is back in 1983. I am being disillusioned with Western civilization because it's created, it's created the cruise missile and Reagan is putting cruise missiles into mm. Europe. And I feel like, and he's talking about Armageddon is just around the corner. And so I, as a 25 year old wow. with a failing love relationship, think basically it's all over. Yeah. And when it, it finally did end, I, I, and I, as I knew it was ending, I started to get back into the blues and it was not, we're not talking about, we're talking about I'm desperate. And I still remember, I, I remember the night that I realized that thing was over. Now, how hard can a breakup hit you? Yeah. I mean, it, and I remember that, that I just had a kind of breakdown. I had a kind of collapse. I tried to take a book off the shelf. I started to cry. I began to like, I couldn't even cry. Wow. It was like when things begin to come apart. And I decided I, at some moment, a friend of mine said, why don't you come to Europe with me this summer? Let's just get the hell out of Dodge. And I thought, well, but, but then she'll definitely leave me. It's like, no, she's leaving you. Yeah. Just go. And I wow. went and I threw a harmonica in my day pack and I had a copy of Let's Go Europe 
sort of, so you could say it's the absolute adventurism if you want. It's like, what kind of blues journey did this guy have? Yeah. But I went with one harmonica, not one, half a dozen of them. And on my second day in town, I ended up connecting with a Danish busker in front of the Pompidou Center, the Centre Georges Pompidou in, you know, the Beaubourg, the Beaubourg in Paris. I had not previously thought about becoming a busker. But it, it, I, I, I went out there, I played solo, and then this guy shows up. We ended up making money, and there was fellowship, there was money, there was an audience, and most of all, there was the sense that you're beginning to put your self-respect back together. Yeah. And, and I think, so, so my uh, re-immersion in music, my sort of plunge back into music in the most serious way that I knew how to take it, was the, the ground of that was incredible romantic despair, but also a sort of despair about Western civilization and about, you know, everything that's good, that like our minds are not um, going to save the world. Yeah. And I thought, how, so how do you save the world? And I, I ended up basically, you know, leaving grad school. Um, uh, and sorry, I realize I'm rambling, but maybe no, people, no. they're <laughs> driving late at night, you know, and they're thinking, Wes is a crazy story. It's like Long John Nebel or something like that when it was late night. <laughs> Stories. So I ended up, it gets even stranger. I wrote a 450-page novel in 14 weeks after I came home trying to explain what had happened because wow. I felt like I'd been turned inside out by music. Mm. I, I ended up, within a year, met my teacher, a man who became my teacher, who was a black New Yorker named Nat Riddles, who became a, a, a dear friend. He died of leukemia in 1991, but mm. he said basically, but you know, You've got a lot of promise. He was six years older than me, and there was a kind of instantly like a big brother, little brother kind of thing. He joked, you know, little cricket, he was going to be my karate kid master, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and he said, Here, here's what you need. I can hear what's going on in there, but your harmonica playing, here, you got talent, but here's what you need. And he showed me how to tongue block. I wish I had a harp on me right now. I would do that. But he showed me just what I needed, and I began to play solo on the streets in New York in 85, and then I hooked up with another guitar player in the fall, and then in the spring, a, another guitar player. We went to Paris and did it for real. And so I, re, I became a, a much better busker in the summer of 86. Hmm. And I came home, and it was at that moment when I didn't know what the heck I was going to do. I thought, well, I got that out of my system, you know, I, I, but I need to get a straight job. And okay. it was at that moment that I am, I get a job basically for seven bucks an hour at Hostos Community College in the South Bronx, and I'm driving through Harlem. Now, I had spent six months, fall of 85, spring of 86, spring and summer of 86, beginning to go to Harlem, beginning to, I went to a jam session, and then it went really well, hmm. and people really liked what I was doing. There weren't a whole, let's say, there weren't a whole lot of white guys coming in off the, off the street with our harmonica who could hang with somebody playing a blues in B flat, and I had been listening to... I mean, I listened to WBGO nonstop, so it was yeah. all jazz sax. It was all Houston Person and Maceo Parker and, and, and anything I could get my hands on that was sort of that, that East Coast um, organ, drums, guitar, groove kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I, so I had a whole experience in Harlem clubs that taught me an amazing amount, an amazing amount. And I'm driving through Harlem in the fall of 86, and that's when I came across the guitar player who I would end up knowing for the next 30 six years and end up having a career with and writing a book about and having make there was a documentary that was made about us so and that's just folks there's a lot more yeah. <laughs> there's a lot more the stories so the story's kind of unreal 
But you asked that you begin by asking if we can go back to that question. It's like, how do you put the academic thing together with the music thing? Because they really are different worlds. Yeah. And I would and I'd say one I'll answer very quickly. Once I'd had that experience in Harlem and, and the experience playing and sort of forging an interracial partnership during a really bad time in New York's racial history. Mm. Fall of 86, we've been together for two months, and then that Howard Beach happened. And Michael Griffith is killed, running away from some Italian thugs who chase him out of a pizza parlor, and, and uh, Ed Koch calls it a racial lynching. You have Howard Beach, you have Yusef Hawkins a couple of years, two or three years later, been killed. That was the period of time in which I was a Harlem street musician. Wow. And he and I together were sort of holding down this weird kind of brotherhood thing. He thought about it that way. I'm not sort of inventing this as a, as a meaning. They mean, one of the meanings it carried for him and me was like, we're not that thing. We're not that thing out in Queens or Brooklyn, mm. right? We're not, we're like at the antidote to that. We're showing you that you can get along. The kind of, um, can, can we all get along, right? Rodney yeah. King, which was also happening, of course, at this time, um, 91 or 92. Um, but I went back to grad school. When I went back to grad school, what I had was this, this whole very, very rich experience. And I wanted to go back and sort of think through some of the implications of the kind of partnership that I'd had. Because it was a moment when people like Bell Hooks, she had an essay called Eating the Other, in which she ascribed terrific bad faith to people who, uh, of, let's say, of my race and gender or... or or of my race period, right? Mm. Sort of any white person who intersects with black culture and black people is, is essentially a cannibal in some mm. way. Wow. And I wanted, I wanted to critique that. And I wanted to, to test it. I, wanted, I, I didn't agree, but I wanted to test out the proposition. Yeah. Um, and, and grad school became, a, it's a whole kind of adventure too, because I got deep into the racial violence element of the blues, which is something I hadn't actually thought about. Yeah. Um, wow. Dude, th that's so, that's yeah, so yeah. like Sorry. no 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 yeah. worries. The whole so, whole, whole point of uh, actually something you said earlier, dude. The whole point of um, of a podcast is to ramble. You know, I would I would say so. Thank you. Yeah, man. I, do, I, okay. I I love everything you said, and and to me, it doesn't. Um, I think even just hearing you speak and like the the way you're saying these things and describing, uh, I can tell that. Um, and I wonder if you just always have been like this, but I can tell that you don't take uh, a moment for granted in that like you're constantly finding meaning in every moment. And, like like not, not even and possibly not even like consciously, but like maybe you're able to think about like a walk that you took and maybe you take that walk every day, but you're able to like see how this was different today and, and that's different. You know, you're not, you're not just like going through the motions. I can tell that you're really absorbing everything you're, you're experiencing, which, you know, I Thanks. then can see how you're able to, you know, seamlessly go in and out of, you know, the world of academia and music. And I mean, just cause like the, the way that you're, um, piecing together the experiences that you had and like just how one thing led to another, um, I, I'm sure you've really like, uh, you know, put yourself through it in terms of just like really thinking about everything you've experienced and, and like just how you've gotten to this moment in your life. And, um, it's just, it's, it's really awesome. And you just, you, I can tell you're, you're very thoughtful with these things. Yeah. Well, my, the occupational hazard, I think 
being me is probably you got to turn off the mind at some point. So when I when I make music, I do like to drink some bourbon. <laughs> um, I mean, I, it's it, it, you to get in the flow zone. I don't. I would never want to play drunk. That's not my idea of a good time. Yeah. And playing drums, it wouldn't work. Yeah. Um, but I think a little bit, sort of turning off the the consciousness thing a, a little bit helps. Mm-hmm. But you're right. I, you know, it's funny. I a couple of years ago, I I got or two or three years ago, I got moved. Um, for complex reasons to, by the idea, I had a book in mind. Um, and I ended up writing a 200,000 word memoir in six or seven months. Wow. Like just like from five to seven every morning I I went out and wrote and then, and somehow it got done. It was crazy, but, but it was essentially, um, it was called our car. I I haven't published it yet. Um, and I realized I have, I there's, it involves sort of a complex relationship between my mother and my father, but it was also centered around a particular 1992 Honda that I had tricked out that I ended up, ended up becoming a really important part of my life for about 10 years. That ended up it sort of candy apple blue with big chrome rims and big fat tires and a thermal exhaust system. And, and I, I, I seemed like a person, most people knowing me would have thought that's kind of strange that he'd end up with that car. And I wanted to explain how a downstate New York guy had gotten there. Yeah. And, I, and it led me all the way back to a go-kart that I sort of rehabbed and, and, and built as a tween. And then every car that I'd ever owned, begin, beginning with my first car, which I bought from a nuclear engineer who's still alive, Santosh Hain, J- Santosh Jane, J-A-I-N, yeah. somewhere in Berkeley. I bought a car when I was in 1980. So anyway, the point is I basically went through my entire life. Sounds strange to sort of write a memoir that takes you from the age of about one all mm. the way to the present moment and through recent American history and all of its trials, um, including, interesting, uh, uh, you know, 2008, which for many people, inauguration night, um, I mean, I happened at, at that moment, I ha- I'm interracially married, my wife's a black Texan, and we had a two-year-old son. <laughs> and here's the, you could point at the TV and say basically, um, someday, son, you, you too could be president. It's like first time in history yeah. that a couple like us with that child could point him at the TV. Um, he was, happened to be asleep that night when the inauguration took place. But it sort of led me through all, all of it. It's strange that it led me through all of that. And the, and the car, which I ended up selling here in Oxford, um, and it passed through several hands, um, all of them African-American owners until, I mean, I go and I find the guy who owned it. Yeah. I don't ever see it, but I find the guy. We talk about it, and I show him photos, and we, he's got my car. Our car is really a metaphor for America, for whatever you want to call it. But it's a... Wow. But making meaning. So what you said was that I seem to want to kind of milk mine or milk my own experience. Yeah, I, I, I hope it's not a narcissistic thing, but it, you, know, you only get to live once. And to me, it's kind of fascinating. And of course, there are moments when life is just a boring, it's the same old, same old. Mm-hmm. Or no, but I guess, I, I guess yeah. what I, I, yeah. I kind of meant was um, yeah. th- that you're, you're, you are able to see the, 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 in a, in a great way, you're able to see like the, the deeper meaning in like the things that you're experiencing or, or meaning is a, is a, I'd say connection. You're able to see the connection, connection between yeah. like, okay, I, I did this. Someone did once did this before me. What does it mean that like I'm continuing this tradition or that I'm able to experience this today? And, and you're, you're able to just like, you know, 
make those connections, which is uh, re- really awesome. And mm-hmm. even with you know your your uh, you know it, it, it's it's uh, I, I can almost tell that that like because maybe you know on the outside someone would see someone like yourself and be like, man, like this guy is is very hardworking. You're you're doing these two things at such a high level, but I can, I can kind of tell you, you, you seem like someone who processed it in a way where it's just like, well, I'm just doing stuff. And like, you're, you really enjoy what you're doing and you just took a deep dive. You just went for, mm. for these things. And like your, your curiosity just happened to take you to a point where you're now doing all this stuff at, at such a high level. And, and I guess people can experience, you know, those efforts that, that you put in. Um, but Man, that that's it's just it's it's so cool because I I'm I'm actually wondering like how 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 do you do you feel like the the two you know your life as a professor and, and author and then mm-hmm. being this blues musician I, I'm curious like how often do they inform each other like like how how helpful mm-hmm. has doing the one helped see maybe the the other thing in a different light and and vice versa. Well, it, it, that's a it's a great question. Um, the one thing I don't do very often is bring my harmonica into the classroom and force my music on my students. <laughs> it's funny. Um, I so interested. There's one. There's actually an obvious kind of place to go here, um, which is when I'm dead and gone. I suspect that the thing I'm going to end up being known best for in a weird way is what I've done on YouTube. Um, which is to say all of the harmonica instructional videos that I put out there starting early in 2007 when YouTube was strictly non-commercial, you know, and, and I, and I began uploading videos and I've, at this point I have two channels and probably 850 videos out there. Um, but there was just a part of me that's sort of the village explainer and, and, and that, I can play, but I can also sort of break things down and explain that you might say that that's the, the cerebral part that I can sort of take people through. And I'm not yeah. afraid to make mistakes. Turns mm. out that the one thing everybody seems to like is that I flub stuff occasionally. <laughs> Here's a clam that makes a lot of people, it reduces the burden of sort of perfection on people. Yeah. That, you know, yeah. He doesn't have to be perfect, so I don't have to be perfect. But I think, so in the, I think at the end of 2011 was when I ended up, after finishing teaching my blues lit, my undergrad blues lit class, I was really moved. This is the origins of Who's Blues. I was really moved in a way that I never am at the end of a term to sort of reprise everything I'd just done. Mm. And I thought, you know, my YouTube channel, I've been doing this for four years and I've been teaching people how to play, play stuff. But I haven't really given them the other side of what, I, what I'm about, which is to say, when I teach blue classes on blues, it's blues literature. And mm. so the three H's, uh, uh, W.C. Handy, Langston Hughes, or Neil Hurston, Maybe I'll talk about them. August Wilson. There's some blues poetry. There's commentary about the blues. Why don't I just do a video and start sort of talking to, to my my YouTube harmonica people that way? Mm-hmm. So that was a moment. And so not, what I did was just basically grab a couple of books, you know, off the sort of off off the stack of books that I had been teaching from, brought them to my car, and as I was doing my harmonica videos, sat in the front seat of my car and just I improvised a lecture. Yeah. And after the first one, I thought, that, that was, God, I got to do another one. I did another one. And then I said, one, two, and then I, three, four, five, six, all the way through 12. I said, an even 12 bars, like 
I got to do 12 lectures. And it was very easy to think. It was almost like a syllabus. Yeah. And then I did one a, you know, one a day, every couple of days, until they were done. And then I uploaded them. And they're still out there, called Blues Talk. So I called them Blues Talk. Mm. Um, if you put Gusso Blues Talk into YouTube, you'd find them. My book, Whose Blues, came from the fact, I went back and I looked at them and I thought, God, you know, if I, if I got these transcribed, I could probably, in some weird way, kind of convert them maybe into prose, into a book. Yeah. Uh, they'd need some, well, it was, so I got them transcribed and I, I sub substituted three others in maybe. And, but there was a lot of research and a lot of rewriting. So it was not, it was not an easy conversion process. It took every bit of wits that I had. But ultimately, I produced a manuscript that I sent to a publisher and, and, and it was peer-reviewed and revised. And um, that's what Who's Blues began as. It began as sort of this conversation about the blues. So that's one way in which my classroom teaching directly sort of connected with, and I would use the harmonica in these videos to sort of demonstrate certain points, like the tension between major and minor. What's a blue note? Mm. And I'm fascinated by, you know, it's not, it's not the minor third, certainly not the major third. It's the rising edge on a minor third. It's mm. sort of a minor third up a, and, and, and all of those, that stuff, which I could hear and I could play, but I was trying to find language to, to communicate it and, and then help people understand how important it was. Help them, for example, the opening strain in the sheet music for uh, W.C. Handy's St. Louis Blues, which maybe is the, most, the best known blues composition around the world. Da -da, da -da. My son has perfect pitch. I don't. Da -da 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 -da. Da -da -da. So that goes minor third to major third. There's a little yeah. grace note on the sheet music. It's like, do you see what Handy did? He can't get the note in between in sheet music, but he can go from minor to major. And that was a, that was a melodic innovation that caught people's ears. Yeah. Like, is this, is this minor? Is it a sad song? Or is it, you know, sad and tragic? Or is it major? Is it bouncy? And he found the perfect way of sort of representing getting the blues taste. Mm. And I write about this in one of the chapters, sort of the, the, the scent of the blue, the melodic feeling of the blues in a way that your average school marm could play it, your average person who could play the piano could play it. They didn't have to have an ear for blues pitch the way that Bessie Smith would sort of absolutely nail those in-between pitches, those sliding yeah. pitches. But they could just play it. Anyway, that's a way in which you can see I am the village <laughs> explainer. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Next time I'll answer briefly rather no, than... No, no, dude, this is, this is great, man. And, yeah. and I, I love that. Yeah. I can, you kind of hit on this, like towards the end there um in that uh something i've i've really i've always appreciated about uh the blues and and its culture is how um if you really 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 want to get deep into it whether musically or culture wise um you know their history like you can but it seems to have one of the most welcoming entries as a genre in terms yeah. of like you know like like you know in a sense that like I think people feel like they can get a hang of, okay, what's a blue scale or what, what's the sound like? And then of course, if you really want to take it far again, like you can see how, you know, the subtleties and nuances, but, um, and I, and I, and I say that like the, the, it's the two, it's both musically and just all the people I know. Um, I feel maybe that's not the, the case, but like I, all the people mm -hmm. I know in the blues community are just so welcoming, uh, they are. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So, so it's 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 um, 
It's nice because I think historically, do you, do you think uh, do you think like the part of the history that that goes into the genre, like it 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 having that door open for people to both uh, engage in it musically and just be a fan, like like why do you why do you think that that's the mm. energy that kind of like encompasses the, the genre? Because it's a beautiful thing, and I'm not sure if any genre is like quite as welcoming. Um, it's That's interesting. interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So really, and, and so I immediately I go in a lot of different directions, and I think historically. Um, so you know, if you were to go back to the origins of blues, it, it's connected with the spaces that it's played in, and so juke joints, uh, you know, in, in southern terrain are basically all black spaces in a time when Jim Crow was in effect, when you kind of need those. Um, what's her name? Tira Hunter, the scholar who's now at Princeton, wrote about uh, uh, black female domestics in Atlanta and how they, you know, one of the ways they sort of got, got, kept themselves put together after long, hard days doing laundry was to go out and, and dance and drink a little bit and, at, at blues clubs mm -hmm. and how they're, they're, um, the people they work for were trying to sort of rein that in. Yeah. And they were like, no, this is my time, <laughs> the all night long thing. So there's, the, the community becomes then really, important. It's a place where you're sort of, and Robin D.G. Kelly writes about this too, it's sort of a place you're putting yourself back together in the company of other like-minded people. And again, and there's a sense, okay, so if the, if, if the surrounding world is sort of like what it is, at least we can have our space, the way that the, you know, the mafia had La Cosa Nostra, you yeah. know, our thing, <laughs> you can sort of have your thing. Yeah. Um, and, and, but of course something happens. Uh, and as you get as you get sort of into the late 50s, first of all, rock and roll comes along. It starts, it begins to suck away some of the interest. Young people, black and white, are moving away from blues to some extent and going into rock and roll. So fifth, in my book, I write about 1955 is the moment when Muddy Waters and Little Walter, who've been on top of the world, are suddenly at chess a little bit displaced by Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley. Yeah. And, and sort of blues communities, so that, if you will, if you will the, the, the black blues community goes through this, this shrinkage and this metamorphosis maybe after 1960. Soul music comes in and at the very moment and, and begins to suck away young people who just aren't, it's like blues, it becomes seen as that old sound that the parents and grandparents like. Mm. And soul is the sound, you know, whether it's Ray Charles or Sam Cooke or, or uh, you know, even Etta James, I guess she's more the blue side of soul. Um, and of course, Aretha and others later on. But by the mid 60s, B.B. King's talking about this. His black audience is shrinking, but suddenly you've got this white audience. Yeah. And they're, you know, and, and a certain cohort of white blues musicians. And so by the time you get to 19, the late 60s, for example, B.B. King goes and plays uh, at the Fillmore West in, uh, in San Francisco. And he, he says, I enter, and the last time I played, this was an entirely black audience. Now it's an entirely white audience of flower children, and they're all applauding me before I've played a note. And so artists are finding new communities. Black artists are finding that they have white communities. The Ann Arbor Blues Festival is a good example of that. Um, and, and there's also, at the same time, there's sort of a whole, there's white blues singers. There's the Janis Joplin's of the world and the Paul Butterfield's and the sort of Dionysian thing that gets set loose. Yeah. And so you have, I, Woodstock has some of this, I suppose, and you've got, and of course, Jimi Hendrix is a part of this too, with his take on the blues as a kind of acidy, rocked out thing, cream, you know? And so you yeah. think about 
what's the movement from Sir Neil Hurston in a Southern Duke circa 1925 on the one hand? What's the movement from that to 1968 cream at the, you know, at the Roseland Ballroom or something with everybody doing acid? It seems like, and yet the community thing is there and the music is pulling people in. Um, of course, a lot of things happen in the aftermath of all that and the blues societies get set up and I'm fascinated. I don't think there's been enough work at all done on this. The first blue society, as far as I know, is the Bucks County Blue Society mm. in Levittown, Pennsylvania. I, it, in the it, 75, 76, 77 or thereabouts. And it's like Vietnam vets with a clubhouse and they start bringing blues artists in. And so they start bringing black blues artists in mm. who've lost their black public to some extent. But now there's this audience of it's kind of like white bikers who like their music. And, but again, I think one way to think about this, and I haven't mentioned this yet, but what's going on politically behind all of this, of course, mm. is the civil rights movement yeah. and the transformation of American culture through the civil rights movement. And so there's a way that you might argue, you might argue that the ideal of beloved community that seems to get pushed aside, but King's ideal, John Lewis's ideal of beloved community, the true interrelatedness, that that gets pushed aside to some extent by, by Malcolm X, by black nationalism. It's sort of like, I mean, who's interested in integration in 1970? It turns out Mississippi is. That's a fascinating, you know, by the time everybody else is sort of pushed past integration into other kinds of more politicized things in Mississippi, they finally passed a law in January of 1970 is when all the schools here in Mississippi, the public schools suddenly are required to be, you can't have, you have to have unified school districts. Mm -hmm. You can't have a black school and a white school in town. They have to be together. And that's like a crisis in Mississippi, everywhere else. Well, Willie um, Morris writes about this in Yazoo. Everywhere else they've given up on it in Mississippi. They're finally like, we're going to figure out how to make this work. Then of course the white folks take their kids out of school and and put them in, in uh, segregation academies. So there's that tragedy. But what I was going to say is that the world of the blues, you say you think, and I think you're right, there's something nurturing. And I think that some of that spirit of beloved community lingers on in a powerful way. Mm. A sense of, and it's partly driven. Here's, a, here's an unexpected place that drives it. African-American elders in the blues world couldn't always show up with all black bands. They might have, which the, the sort of bands they might've had back in the Jim Crow day, you know, mm -hmm. the Albert Collinses of the world, the Freddie Kings. And it turned out here are all these younger white musicians who would love nothing more than to go out on tour with Pine Top Perkins. When Buddy, when I opened for, when Sterling and I opened for Buddy Guy in Central Park in 1990, 1990 right after your damn right I've got the blues came out and Buddy Guy was suddenly like, that was his huge moment. He shows up in Central Park with an all-white band. That's just, and there was nothing exceptional about that. Mm. White female keyboard player and everybody else, just like younger white musicians. That was Buddy's band. That's who he brought on the road. Not, you know, I don't think it's a choice thing exactly. It's like, well, who can you get? Yeah. And can they play? And can you do your thing on uh, above what they're laying down for you? And, and so I think, again, another long answer, but beloved community, I, I'd like to, we should unpack that a little bit more, but I, yeah. I, I think that, that that lingers and shows up to some extent in the way that 
blues people sort of forge a community. There are, there are the problems with that model, but I, I think some of that, that is what's going on. Yeah, no, it's just, it's so, yeah. um, I, I'm so glad that you explained it that thoroughly just because I didn't know all of that uh, history, yet I, I, um, I, w I got a sense that something had to happen in which like bringing people together and, uh, you know, just allowing people to enjoy this thing, mm. uh, you know, had to be a fabric of its history for it to be such a, a genre where, um, you know, people just feel so comfortable, um, yeah. both yeah. like on stage and in the audience. And um, this is interesting to me just because like you're, you um, obviously you, you get to, um, you know, tour and travel so much uh, with this. And I'm, I'm, I'm interested in like, like how, how, I don't know how much like you interact with the audience, maybe like before, or after, or during the show, mm -hmm. but like like like, I guess from your years of 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 performing, I mean, I'm I'm interested in like what maybe things that you've seen or th people in the audience, like what they've said to you in terms of you know maybe what your performance did for mm. them or just you know the, even the just the energy in the room but if there's like any moments that have kind of stood out to you in terms of and maybe even for you where you like realize like man this is why mm. i love doing this so much yeah um there i mean there it's interesting because of course mostly what i'm thinking about is the the the, the decades the the long years that i spent um playing with with Sterling McGee playing as a part of a duo called Satan and Adam. Um, and I think about, there were some early moments on the street. In fact, I, I kept the journal in those days and, and I was reviewing it at, at some point. The first time that I played, I'd been playing in Harlem on and off for about two or three months. And the first time that I went down there after the Howard Beach murder had happened, when the New York papers, this is, a, this is early 1987, and the New York papers were filled with stories about this. Every day, the tabloids were, were raking it over the coals about just racial, ten, racial explosion and tension. And I go down to Harlem, and I played. And far from taking it out on me, as you one might have expected, some people would just not be glad to see me. Hmm. I, wrote, I came home that night, and I wrote in my journal. I said, I must have shaken hands 200 times today. Wow. Which is to say, people came up. And they were making a point of saying, we're glad to see you guys out here. And there was clearly a sense that people were not judging me. You could say by the content of my skin, by the content of my character, color of my skin, but the content of my character. There was a way in which I was Mr. Satan's boy. <laughs> I was just the harmonica man. We were having fun out there. It was the, they, the music touched people. And they were making a point of sort of saying, well, not everyone say you're cool, but it's like we're cool, mm. right? There, we're, there's no problem here, and I, I think that. So that's a moment, and there was another moment, uh, somewhat later, when I was playing, and there was a a black man about my age. He was younger. I would have been. I would have been in my late twenties or early thirties. He had he had locks, um, and he got really excited by something I was playing, or agitated. I couldn't tell which. And when the song was over, he kind of ran up to me and reached under his shirt and took, uh, and it turned out to be one of those ANC medallions, African National Congress, black, red, and green, little leather medallion. You can actually find them. And he said, man, he goes, I, I, I love you. I love what you're doing. He goes, he, you've, you, you've earned this, brother. And when you come down to Harlem, you wear this. Wow. 
and he put it around my neck. Now, I'm not the kind of guy who would show would sort of show off something like that. So I didn't. I I went home and I sort of took it off, feeling incredibly grateful, right? That you're there's a benediction that's been given, a blessing maybe, and and I went and I took it and I sort of hung it up at home, and then later the the one time in the four and a half years that I played on the street on 125th. And by the spot was just a block from the Apollo Theater. It looks very different these days, but but uh, by the Studio Museum, just next to the Studio Museum. The one time I got hassled, and it's something I've written about in, in Mr. Satan's Apprentice and, and at several other points, but it was two weeks after Do the Right Thing opened in New York in the summer of 89. I went back later to try to figure it out. It turns out that, you know, that film opened like July, June 1st, or I think it was June 1st, maybe July 1st, but two weeks later, my journal tells me a guy, two guys come up, and one of them has a sort of Malcolm X glasses, as I think of them. One has a skull cap, a knit skull cap, a little taller. I recognized the second guy. The first guy I didn't, and he was the one, the sort of, with a sort of Malcolm pose, it's like, why is it, he went up to Sterling, why is this white boy playing with you? <laughs> this is our neighborhood. Why is a white guy playing? And Mr. Satan, as I called him, said, you know, I will not be challenged as to who, that's my harmonica man. Mm. I won't be challenged as to who I do or don't have playing with me. At which point the guy said, you're a harmonica man. You know what you are? He goes, you are a Negro. And then he began to, and then he came towards me and I'm thinking, I mean, I've never seen anybody disrespect this man, this incredibly powerful master musician that I've been playing with. And suddenly we're at that moment. Mm. And I, and I talk with him. And I revealed pretty quickly that I actually, I mean, I said, I'm not, I won't go through the whole thing that I said, but I, one thing I, I did is reveal that I actually had thought about these issues and talked about the history of American music as, and the ripoffs that were part of it. And that seemed to kind of not, not shut him down, but just slow him down a little bit. And mm-hmm. at which point Mr. Satan found his voice, began yelling, don't blame it on him. What's going on at Howard Beach is none of the, or Bensonhurst or whatever is not this, you're this man that's responsible. At which point the other guy came up and said, basically, I said, man, you've seen me out here. I've been here for three years. People like what we're doing out here. Yeah. And he said, well, I've seen you. But he goes, you know what? Just because people here are okay with it, you know, this is a, this is a black neighborhood. Yeah. And can't nobody tell what some young guy with a chip on his shoulder might, might do. Mm. He just let the threat just thump down on the ground like that. And then they left. Yeah. <laughs> At which point I... You know, I sat down, I was kind of shattered, and I, I thought, well, maybe your time's up. And so that, that led to a week of me, I told Mr. Satan, I said, look, I gotta, let, let me chill for a while, we'll figure this out, but I need to retire from the field for a while. And I went home and I thought about it, I ultimately decided that I was going to go back. He wanted me back, he called and said, everybody's missing you, come on back. And it's like, yeah, everybody, but I had never previously thought of myself as endangered Mm. and suddenly there was this implied threat and I went back but this is the the point of the story is when I went back I went and I got that African national thing and I put it underneath my shirt I wanted it and I thought Jesus Adam that you you know you're you're acting like it's a mojo it's an amulet it has magical powers yeah Yeah. (laughs) and it, it taught me something about how you might not how, I mean, it wasn't in the subjunctive or conditional tense. It was like, when your ass is on the line, you do what you feel you need to do. 
but I was still scared and I, and I remained scared. I began to smoke cigarettes. He sort of would give me a cigarette and that chilled me out. So you begin to get a little deeper into life. And, and of course what I learned, I mean, I ended up deciding, talk about making meaning out of things. I ended up thinking it was a, a really important, it was a, a moment of awakening. Yeah. And what it was is, and I didn't think about the term privilege. It's not actually a term that I like, that I particularly like or use. But in this case, it would be easy to say, I could have easily said, you know what, Adam, look, you've got what you needed from this gig. (laughs) You really know how to play. You've had three incredible years. Um, There's no album. We don't have any recorded music, but I mean, you've got, you've got, let's just go, just go because you can't afford to risk this. And when I chose not to do that, it was almost like what I was saying is, look, if I go back, you have to understand, Adam, you're not safe. He can't protect you. Mm. And that which is to say you can either go or you can go back and you can be a little bit closer to where everybody else has been all this time. Yeah. Which is to say, and we'd never seen violence in, uh, on 125th. Harlem was not a particularly violent place compared to, you know, Brooklyn. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and there was the gang kind of gang stuff wasn't happening in Harlem, but I was forced to sort of say, um, all right, well, if, if I, how, how badly do you want to play this music? And, and um, that's so that changed. I, I say that changed the way that I thought about the music. It also eventually led him and me to make an album and to move off the streets. Mm. At some point, he got hit by a, a, some young kids brought along a super soaker water gun, you know, like, oh, yeah. and that'll f up your your uh, your your battery powered amps. And oh. and he just got pissed off, and it was like, I don't need this. <laughs> we, we're done here. Let's you know we're going to move on. And so there was that, but it was a joint decision. And he and I, I mean, we had eight, we had seven good years from 91 to 98. And then of course, a whole, a whole long after story that culminated in 2013, when we played the new New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival for the first time since 1991. And then a documentary that opened in the, at the Tribeca Film Festival, the sort of called Satan and Adam, the 23 year long project that a, a filmmaker had, had finally brought to completion. Wow. Um, but anyway, I, I can't, I could talk all day about <laughs> what I learned f- from him. Yeah. Um, no, that, that, him. that, so that moment, um, yeah. where that happened, uh, that, that, that's so interesting to me. And I, and I wonder if, because you, you, you know, you mentioned that that was the, really the only time you'd ever been uh, heckled or, or called out like that. Yeah. And, yeah. um, for, for, for it to be, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, this is, it's human nature. It's like you get a million compliments and then you get one, you know, negative review or response. And it's, it's really hard to not focus your energy on, on that one, you know, negative experience. And that being said, I wonder if it hit you so hard, not only because of what happened, but were, I guess you having been a part of this, that experience for, you know, a, a long, a, a long time leading into that moment and going into it, kind of being mindful of how you stood out um, um, or stuck out, I guess, as a, as a white guy was, was part of why that moment hit so hard because like maybe a part of you was always a little scared that something like that was eventually going to happen. Just being who, who you are, like, was it like, man, that's a good question. That's uh, yeah. You know, and I, nobody's ever asked that specific question, but it's, it's, you know, was I, the other possibility, of course, is that, well, I w- there was some fear initially when I first went into, 
when I first got parked my car on 125th, just east of 5th or just west of 5th and went to La Famille for my first jam session because somebody in, who told me he was Sonny Rollins' nephew, you know, he said, you should come. There's a jam session. People will love it. And, and I went and he wasn't there and I'm, I'm in the club and it's an all black club and I'm, I haven't been in those kind of spaces before. Mm. So certainly there was some fear early on followed by the surprise and delight that there was a warm reception and that people really were wanted to kind of teach. They would see me and there was something they could impart to me. Um, I, I think so just as likely might be the fact that although my initial immersion experience in Harlem musical culture was accompanied by some fear. And by the way, I should say the fear, I thought about this a lot. Like wh what plant, and I wrote about this in that long kind of memoir, mm. what, what planted that fear? So I grew up in about 20 miles north of New York. I was born in 58. So through the 66, 67, 68, there's TV, what's happening in Harlem? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's kids on hot days with cracking water fountains open. It's, it's people rioting in 64. It's, it's Malcolm X and people giving speeches. It's John Lindsay pacifying the neighborhood by daring to walk through it. But Harlem is associated for anybody. And my, my folks were um, kind of anti-racist before the term existed. They were like fellowship of reconciliation. They were kind of progressive, uh, not activists that way, but, but, but certainly my family was from that sector of the, the liberal intelligentsia, I guess you'd say. Yeah. And yet there's TV. And so there's the images that you get. And then when I moved with my girlfriend to New York in the fall of 1980, think about it. You're going to get Fort Apache, the Bronx in a year or two. Yeah. Um, and it's a time, and there's, there's all this stuff on the, uh, 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 the subways, you know, it, it, uh, all the spray paint, right? All the, the graffiti sort of graffiti art and we are told i specifically remember we're we're young grad students moving into the columbia neighborhood and somebody basically pointed at morningside park and said harlem's that way <laughs> don't go there wow. you know in a sense like there's the heart of darkness trouble comes from down there yeah. you know and 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 there's a story about some grad student who was walking home one night with his girlfriend they get to like the entree of their apartment building there's a black guy with a gun. The, the white guy makes a, 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 the guy says like, basically, give me your money. The white guy says, you sure? Or makes a joke, at which point the black guy kills him. It's all in those stark racial terms and violence is there. That's what people, that was my introduction. Mm. So who wouldn't carry some residual sense? I got, but I got through all of that. Mm. And then think about, imagine the everydayness. Imagine not my first or second or third time playing with Sterling, but imagine we've been there for, two or three years on and off. Mm. Um, and imagine we've played in all four seasons. We've, we've swept snow off the sidewalk. Sometimes there's just the two of us and nobody is stopping, right? And sometimes it's a Saturday and there's a, a pretty big crowd and people are throwing money in. Imagine, imagine that becomes a kind of everyday environment yeah. where, and it's, this, it's the same handful, the half dozen guys who are kind of hangers on all of them older black men. There's no, there's no other white people around. Harlem in that point was, you'd occasionally see people, white tourists maybe going to the Studio Museum, occasionally a sort of beat down older white woman who, you know, sort of going to the welfare office, um, occasionally an interracial couple that way, sort of who might've lived there, but basically an all black environment. And imagine 
that I'm there. And as unlikely as it sounds that I've actually become completely comfortable because I've got this incredibly charismatic, powerful master musician who wants me there. Yeah. You know, and we're really, and, and most of the time, and I think this is under, uh, understood, people don't understand, when you're making music, you're tuning all the time. You're tuning the groove. You're tuning relative to each other. You're trying to get, you're trying to make it work, trying to make it flow. I learned some amazing lessons about the groove. In fact, mm. I, I, there's one I actually do want to impart because yeah. early on, you can imagine the, the 28 year old guy that I was, you want to impress people. You want to make them think, Hey, he can, he can really play this stuff. At least that's what I thought. And I did. But when I would try to play really fast, what I realized is nobody was stopping. It wasn't impressing anybody. But, but I, as I began to just let go of the desire to impress and just said, I want to be faithful to the music. So let, and really listen to what Sterling was doing, not just on guitar, but on percussion. Let my body find the right thing to play. Like turning off the head, right? And let my body f sink into the groove. What I recognized was that the moment it really began to feel right between me and him, groove-wise, was the moment people would begin to pause, stop. They could feel mm. that there's something happening. That was such a huge lesson. Yeah. That that it was just about it's about the groove, yeah. and that's I, it's something I've kept with me for a long time. Wow. Yeah. yeah no, I, I I love that because um, uh, we're we're there's so much that we can't really uh, articulate in words but and and like you don't have to be an expert in said thing but um it, it is pretty amazing how we can quickly rec recognize um a genuine energy or genuine chemistry um in something that's happening especially when it's a, it's uh multiple people in, involved because i think um i think people just love witnessing uh, something that is genuinely synchronized, um, mm. especially things that would historically, in your context, historically would represent division, would represent hatred. But then to like see, like you know, because there there probably weren't the first, uh, you know, optics wise, probably not the first time these people are seeing a black guy and a white guy uh, uh, together. But maybe you know, the times that they have seen it, it's something very forced, where it's like you know, a white politician and some black leader of some mm -hmm. neighborhood, just something very forced. But then to, to, it must have been so powerful to witness something where it's like, well, these two people like don't really need each other. And, um, you know, for some like political reason, and mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's yeah. to, to just watch you two um, be really just genuinely feeding off of each other, I'm sure it must have been, uh, it, it's, it's bigger than the music. It, it, it symbolized, um, you know, for lack of a better word, it just, it just represented a, a companionship that people probably just didn't witness in any avenue. So, you know, so, and then of course you were talking about music, but then to just see that it probably just for a lot of people, you just weren't able to see that in, in any avenue. Yeah. And I, I did have the sense, I mean, obviously Harlem is a very cosmopolitan place, so there are many people there who might have worked downtown or worked, you know, up in the Bronx in in settings that would be um, very mixed. And I, there were also a fair share of people, I think, who sort of didn't <laughs> didn't see a lot of white people because there weren't a lot of white people in Harlem who may have been a little more community based. 
And so sometimes what would happen is interesting is, um, I mean, there was one of our hangers on, uh, one of the guys who would, who tended to bring a chair out and kind of sit there when we were there and just watch us. It was like, it was our, it was like a daily thing. And he said, Hey, I'm from West Virginia. And he, and he talked about country music. Mm. Now I, I knew nothing about country music. I'm just a, a white guy, but, but you know, he's thinking about the, the white guys he knew back in West Virginia and they were all in the country music. And so he, he would, sometimes people would see me and I would become a kind of useful, constructive token in a sense mm. that would then open up a conversation. Um, and often with, it's so interesting. This happened more than once, you know, about, about and it sounds strange because I never, I always found it marvelous and, and um, I mean, early on when I went into a, 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 a a club, somebody said, hey, it's David Stockman, because I had those, I had aviator glasses, and that was Reagan's budget chairman. So like, he's like a white guy that I've seen before. So people would sort of make those kind of jokes. Yeah. Hey, David Stockman. Hey, you know, um, <laughs> you know, I, sure, I look like the white guy, you know, right? But yeah. I mean, those, those are funny, right? They're yeah. funny. But sometimes it would be that there's, they'd grown up with somebody who looked like me. Mm-hmm. And I would be, a, I would offer them the pretext for reconnecting with that experience. Mm. And reaching out, and and so they they throw some positivity my way, on a totally sort of unexpected thing, and 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 I thought those were neat. So that sort of led to those. At the University of Mississippi, we have a, you know, a, a, an office of cross cultural engagement. It's like, well, you know, cross cultural engagement happened before there was an office for it, yeah. and and it was some of that, some of those kind of conversations that would. So we would sometimes talk politics. And conspire in a good way, and and I still remember when David Dinkins was elected mayor of New York, first black mayor of New York, and how the char- how charmed the feeling was on the street, and so so you would really get a sense, I think, of the the way in which cultural politics and politic politics affected the feeling tone of the community, mm. and so those moments when it seemed more hopeful in racial terms were there was a kind of uh, jubilee feeling that I remember distinctly because because we're out there playing and it's the morning after the election, right? Mm-hmm. Or whatever it is, the day after the election. Everybody is in a great mood and so the music becomes a, a, a thing that conducts that energy. Yeah. And I, so that's what you, part of what you mean, I think, by real. Yeah. Um, and, fr- and freedom, I think. We were sort of manifesting a kind of freedom with each other. Yeah. A kind of, on a, in a kind of large scale that was very unfamiliar for people, but I think they most of them seem to like it. Yeah, and and correct me if I'm wrong, because it, it sounds like the majority of your uh, writing, um, whether you know it's books or, or memoirs, it, it seems like uh, the majority of it um, came uh, after uh, your you had already had a, a uh, you know many experiences as a musician, um, mm-hmm. and yeah. I, I'm I'm interested in that like. Uh, because, uh, because you know, it sounds like you've been, you've been, you know, we were ta- when we were talking earlier about you um, being, you know, much younger and and just deciding to take a a, a plane ticket to 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 Europe with your friend. Um, you know, you were writing then, and and but but when did it? When did it? I guess was there a moment or just maybe a realization where. Um, Maybe, maybe it wasn't that the music wasn't enough, but like, was it like this moment where it's like, I need to pair the music with writing about these experiences and writing about all this history 
Um, I, I guess when did you realize like that needed uh, to be a a, 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 a priority? In, in that's that's interesting. Yeah. When I was when I was uh, um, when I was an English grad student at Columbia between eighty two and eighty four, I I entered Columbia very much wanting to become a literary journalist, and I and music was not any part of what I was doing. I, I reviewed for the Columbia Spectator books about nuclear war and anti, you know, feminism, feminism and the fate of the earth. I was a very, um, I, I, so I wanted to sort of be contemporary the way that there are people these days who do that, uh, online. I, you know, they didn't have online. I, I reviewed books for Saturday review I, for the village voice. Um, but music was no part of it at all. Mm-hmm. And, and then what happened is basically I and and Jack Kerouac, interestingly enough, Jack Kerouac, the guy who wrote On the Road and a brilliant beat writer with his own kind of thing going on, was somebody that I was really taken taken with and wrote a, uh, an essay about that was published in '84. So I had a career that I then walked away from. Mm. I did, and I and I published basically one thing between '84 and '94, one or two things. I mean, like nothing. Mm. I just walked away. I, um, so going back, but but during that period of time, I was doing an awful lot of reading. And so one thing that began to happen is I, I began to turn. I, if I here I am in Harlem and I'm playing, well, I want to understand that experience. Yeah. And so you know, read biographies of Martin Luther King and and um, and Invisible Man and and uh, autobiography of Malcolm X and sort of all the the black lit that you might read to try to understand that experience. Um, and when I went back to, I'm trying to think what else just, uh, there was a lot back then. Yeah. The color purple. I, I, that was the one I, I reviewed that the fall it came out back in 82, I think it was. Um, so I had that, that was before the music experience, but so, so understanding, understanding that world was important to me. Mm. Um, when I went back to grad school though, it, it was, it was just an explosion of, just all kinds of stuff, and that's when I actually decided it was the fall. It was the I think it may have been the very first term I was at grad school. I took a seminar on the Harlem Renaissance with Arnold Rampersad, who ended up becoming one of my dissertation committee members. Um, he was Langston Hughes' biographer. Okay, um, was a MacArthur Fellowship. He, he he did the biography of Arthur Ashe, Days of Days of Grace, I think, um, and other people. He's a very important uh, literary critic. And I took a, a seminar on the Harlem Renaissance and ended up doing a thing that ended up being the genesis of my first academic book, my dissertation, on the connection between uh, the, the, the first blues hit, Crazy Blues by Mamie Smith, and lynching, which was something I hadn't really thought much about. And I got, I was, I suppose like most people, when you actually, when you start to read about that period of American history and what actually went on, it's it's... It's horrifying and, tra- you know, traumatizing, if we can use that word. And I tried to find a connection. I felt like I was seeing something um, because I listened to this song and, I, and, and nobody, nobody, there was nobody, no scholar had ever transcribed the lyrics of the actual recording. And I found that there was a, a, a thing at the end where this woman who's sort of heartbroken and there's a, a man who's left her. She goes, I'm going to do like a China man, go and get some hop get myself a gun and shoot myself a cop. The oh. first time I heard those lyrics, I said, I almost fell off my chair. I said, is that, did I really hear that? Wow. And I ended up going to the Lincoln Center. I found the sheet music. And there was one set of sheet music that didn't have that 
that verse or the, that partial chorus and one that did verbatim. I thought, okay, so I really did hear it. Then I played it for Arnold and he almost fell off his chair. He goes, did we really hear that? I said, yes, that's really what she's saying. And, and I thought that might help explain why this was an explosive hit and why, you know, Jervis Anderson in his book on, in, on Harlem, This Was Harlem, says basically, you know, you went to Harlem and everybody was playing that song. Wow. And I tried to make sense of that moment in 1920 when the race records market was created. And I thought, is it possible? And, you know, a lot of migrant black Southerners, people who had come from a place where there was lots of racial violence and where the cops, the sheriff in that Southern town was often allowing it or a part of it. Is it possible that when they heard, I'm going to shoot, you know, get myself a gun and shoot myself a cop that they might be like right on, you know? Mm. So I wrote, I wrote an essay about that and, and, uh, and ended up doing a dissertation on the role that sort of thinking about the blues tradition through the, through the lens of violence, not just, um, you know, white on black violence, but different kinds of violence. Yeah. But that's how I got into writing about it. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's, uh, that's pretty amazing. I, I, I think, um, uh, it's like, like so many of your, your experiences, uh, especially at this time and, and, you know, in time, I think clearly you probably noticed that, you know, you're, you're, you're spending a lot more time, uh, with communities, with this community that, uh, you uh, are not originally, you know, from or part of, whether due to socioeconomics or race, et cetera. And um, it's interesting, just because, like, what what was your mm. what was your I- experience with um, like like Did you ever have uh, uh, like white people asking you stuff about like you know h- how you're going into these communities or just like commenting on on that? Because I'm I'm sure you. Uh, it's it's interesting because like obviously we've we've talked about how black people mm. have interpreted your presence in um, uh, their communities and whatnot. But it, did, did you ever mm. like receive like questions or comments from uh, white people about just like how you were doing things at the time? You know, at the time, I mean, I had I had I had a, a range of friends. Of course, I had friends in the in what I think of as the downtown blues scene. Um, and they, you know, so there were people who knew that I was playing, you know, you're playing with Mr. Satan. How's that going? Kind mm. of thing. Um, but I would say the New York blues scene w- was, uh, it wasn't, it, so it was unusual that I was doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I taught at a music school. I taught harmonica actually the same fall that I began playing with Mr. Satan. I, I began teaching a blues harmonica course at the, 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 at the new school, um, the Guitar Study Center. And so I would sort of tell my students, a lot of them, the assumption would be, isn't that dangerous, right? Harlem. Mm-hmm. So if, if, it was a, if it was a white person, and it mostly was, but not entirely, a couple of black students in that class from time to time, but they, they would always just sort of assume, that would be the first question, it's like, isn't that dangerous? And I would say, you know, it, it, it doesn't feel that way. Yeah. Um, so that would, be, that would be one question. The one thing I noticed, it's not, this is not quite an answer to your question, but I did notice that the language for talking about the music was a little bit different downtown than it was uptown. For example, downtown, I, I, I learned how to play in a, a wonderfully kind of mixed gin mill type of blues club on 13th Street and 2nd Avenue called Dan Lynch. Mm. And, and there's actually a couple of Facebook groups devoted to Dan Lynch, sort of remembering this wonderful blues club. 
um, with a sort of half black, half white clientele, a sort of place that's not really supposed to exist in America, but there it was, you know, yeah. and, and, um, hang on one sec. I just, I want to just get rid of an, an email. So sorry. Oh, no problem. Not an email. just, I, I was still signed into Ole Miss email and something went bing. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I had never heard the phrase throw down <laughs> until I was playing in Harlem one day and somebody came up, yeah, man, throw down. And I was like, what does that mean? He means like <laughs> play hard. Yeah. You know, it took me years later. I thought, wait a minute. Throw like throw your cards down. Throw your. I'm calling your hand. Yeah. <laughs> it's from card playing. And I thought throw down. I just thought of it. I, I kind of got pretty quickly that it was like throw down means like show me what you got. Yeah. It never occurred to me that it was some cards. That was where I began to see a little bit of divergence. Like there were, but it was you know it was all New York. Um. um I'm trying to think. Later on, here, here's one thing that surprised me. When the documentary came out, I ended up going to a number of film festivals uh, on behalf of the documentary. I had nothing to do with actually producing it, but they wanted, I was one of the subjects, that's the technical term, yeah. for the who's in it. You know, I didn't make it, but I was in it. And so we're going to have the director and a subject. Um, and I would go to a film festival, and often the comments um, from people, mostly white white audience members would be like, you're so brave. Like, weren't you scared? Oh, yeah. That's, of course, because there was that moment, and I narrated in the, in the documentary, where, where the, those two guys came and challenged me. Hmm. And so they're thinking about that, maybe. And I, was, I, I always found myself wanting to say, look, there was that moment, and that moment was scary. And I guess when I came back to Harlem a week after it, I was brave in some sense to come back. I said, but for the most part, I mean, I, there, I never saw a gun or heard a gun. I never saw a knife. There was not, it wasn't a violent place. Yeah. The place that I was playing, it was a strictly delimited part of Harlem. It was that spot and then walking around on the 7th Avenue and maybe sitting with Mr. Satan on what he called his throne, which was a bricked up kind of stoop on 122nd or 3rd and mm. 7th, Adam Clayton Powell Jr. Boulevard, but 7th Avenue. Yeah. Um, but... But yeah, so that those are the questions that I would get. There, I, I would say that, yes, yeah, some p people assume somehow that it must be dangerous or that I must be particularly brave. I didn't feel um, particularly brave. It yeah. didn't, didn't require getting over a lot of fear. Just that one moment, coming back a week after that that yeah. episode, that did take that. I had to grow to do that. Man, that, that's yeah, that's it's really interesting, man. And I, I know this isn't really like uh, uh, music or really even a you question, but but in a way, I'm I'm interested just like your overall maybe just opinion or, or just things that you've noticed since you've been so aware of um you know uh, uh race and uh what what things mean and, and why and, and what's going on I, i'm i'm interested to just see your overall view on just how um you know going back to these memories where you're this younger dude and and playing uh, you know, at this time, and then just like what you see now, and you touched on it a little bit, mm -hmm. like that there's white, yeah. a lot more white musicians in the genre. But just, I, I would even just say overall, just like the 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 just everyday people and how you see people um, uh, uh, relate. I'm just, I'm, I'm so interested in in that. Like, have you ever do you, do you ever just like think to yourself, just like 
you know, how, how have we gotten here? And um, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. How have we America gotten where we are yeah. now all the time? <laughs> I, I, all the time. Yeah. I, no, I think about, yeah. 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 I mean, it, again, I, I'm, I'm almost struggling to ask the, the question because yeah. it's so vague, but hopefully you kind of, you know what I mean? And just in terms of like, mm-hmm. just your overall view of, of, of this. And, you know, I know we kind of talked before we started, you've, you already mentioned it here just about, yeah. you know, you as a, um, uh, father of a biracial kid and just like what that means uh, to you and then also like yeah. society's opinions on stuff. So um, mm. not even sure, you know, where to begin, but yeah. You know, so it's interesting. Um, and I, and I, we are going to have at some point, we're going to talk about my son and his euphonium and his oh, trombone. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but, but that's sort of part of it in a funny way. So I want to, so I want maybe your, your audience to try to imagine this. So so let's imagine. So uh, imagine I, I get a, a gig in 2002. I, I'm a, I'm a, I taught at Vassar for a couple of years looking for a job like anybody with a, with a PhD in English. You're hoping to get a tenure track job. I went on the market as an African-American lit guy. I got called to Harvard. Didn't get the job, but I was in the room with Henry Louis Gates. That'll be my high point. But I got a job at the University of Mississippi and they wanted somebody who would teach blue stuff. And I thought, from my perspective, I've been in New York 22 years. I'm from the Northeast, but I want to get the heck out of Dodge. Yeah. And I ended up meeting the woman who would become my wife through Match.com within a couple of months after coming down here. And within a year and a half, we were we were married. Wow. And so I'm in that kind of I, I'm in I, I'm living that kind of relationship in contemporary Mississippi. Now, just the way that I had, you know, there were there were white people who said, "You're up in Harlem, and you're isn't that dangerous." There might be people who'd say, wait a minute, you're so interracial. How does that work in Mississippi? We've heard so much about the color line in Mississippi, you know, and, and, and then I have, we have a kid in 2006 and then Obama's elected in 2008. What I'll, what I'll just say is that in some ways, um, I've been able to, to live out. And and I mean this without forcing it to sort of live out that idea of beloved community Mm -hmm. The idea that King talked about, that he preached about, that John Lewis, to the end of his life, the true relatedness of the, the human species, if you will. Um, you know, you could say, if you wanted to, if you want to parse us in racial terms, I, I'm in, I'm in a, a black household, majority black household, but it's yeah. me and my wife and our kid. Yeah. My son um, is, he's an amazing kid who seems to have sort of developed, Oxford has, get, Oxford, where the schools, by the way, are some of the most peacefully integrated schools in the country. They're 50% white. The public school, I once, I was curious, 50% white, 40% black, 10% everything else. Mm. Now, there's not a lot of public schools in America that are, that sort of excel. Oxford, the Oxford University, Oxford, Mississippi public schools are some of the best in the state. Um, it's the state of Mississippi, but they're still best in the state. They've got a lot of, there's a lot of uh, professors, kids. Um, there's not much in the way of private schools in this town. So the, 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 the smart kids didn't get taken out or the religious kids. There's a few religious kids. So here we are living this life and it's been a fantastic life. But imagine what it's like to, to do that and then sort of watch America come apart at the seams. Mm. And yeah. I feel very fortunate that, and then watch there was sort of a revolution that happened last summer um, and lots of talk about equity, diversity, equity, and inclusion at my institution too, but also a, a really heightened over the past five or six years, a sort of heightened 
f- attention to race um, and a sort of reifying of racial categories. I actually place, uh, I'll just be honest, but I, the capitalizing of the word black from my perspective is mm-hmm. sort of one element of the reifying of race. I understand there's all kinds of justifications for it and I, I have done it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but, but what, what's it like to live in a household with somebody who is, as of the year 2000 census, you know, he can identify as white and black. What about, and he, and he says the kids think he's Mexican if he doesn't, if they don't know, or Egyptian. You know, I, I tried to have the Trayvon Martin talk with my son, the talk with my son. Yeah. I said, we want to talk about, you ever heard of the talk? I said, have you ever heard of this thing called the, the talk? And no, but it, I said, well, and then I sort of explained what it might be. I said, if a black father were giving this to his son, I said, but we're going to try to do the same kind of thing. And I mentioned Trayvon Martin. And I said, well, if you were stopped by the cops, he goes, oh, no, there wouldn't be a problem because <laughs> they think I'm Mexican. <laughs> so I think a certain amount of just relaxing and allowing a sense of humor might be a good idea. Mm-hmm. A certain amount of my kids, I mean, I need to tell you a story about my son because it'll sort of make all this real. Um, because my son's a gifted, he's a really a gifted musician mm-hmm. and he's, He's gravitated towards the low brass, nice. but I need to, can I, can I take a few minutes and, and tell you and your fans oh, to sort of, of course, this will, and sort of, it'll, it'll disarticulate race and culture and it'll sort of take us in weird places. So my wife and I, when my kid was about five or six, we were up in Memphis one day, just of Saturday afternoon. We went to a pawn shop. I said, we got to get him an instrument. So we went to a pawn shop and got him the, beat his ass trump, the trumpet you could find, $50 trumpet, right? All beat up. We went to Amro Music, uh, which is the, the pr- leading band instrument purveyor in, it's all the schools in Memphis go to Amro. And as we're in the parking lot, the kid is, he's managing to blow a note. He's had the trumpet wow. for precisely 20 minutes and he blows a note on the thing. It's like, wow, okay. We go inside, Go upstairs. The guy says, "We can't, we can't, man. We can't do anything with that trumpet. It's just sorry." Yeah. And I said, "Fine, fine." We head downstairs, and we're we're leaving. And there's a young Asian woman with a violin standing, sort of at the desk in front. And she goes, "She does this amazing thing." Probably a high school kid. And my kid is about halfway out the doorway. Turns around. I'll never forget this. He's had this trumpet for about an hour. He turns and he hears her, and he gets competitive. And he stands there like the little mighty mouse and goes and makes a big note. Like he's doing battle. That's yeah. my kid. He's doing battle. And he's barely had the thing. All right. Latency period. We end up getting him a, a beginner trum- a trumpet at some point. And then when he's in sixth grade, we see that there's a program here at the university and kids will be given like a violin or a cello for the term and they can be part of this orchestra. It's like an enrichment for the community. We go, this is great. So he does the cello thing. Yeah, he does pretty well. But I also get him an electric bass. And then that summer, he begins to play Guitar Hero 3. Mm. And so my Mississippi, my Mississippi household is filled with the sounds of the music that I, as a suburban teen in downstate New York, was trying to get away from. It's all Foghat, Aerosmith, all the cheesy blues rock that, you know, <laughs> we all know those songs. And my kid turns out to be, he's got a, uh, turns out he has perfect pitch and he can track all the melodies and he's firing them with the, so the video game supercharges him wow. for music. He gets into in the fall of seventh grade and he goes in as a tuba, he gets a tuba player. Mm. He gets a tuba. He has two tubas. 
And then he proceeds in the course of the next two years. He goes, tuba? He says, I, well, now I want to play bass, bass clarinet. I go, really? You know, Eric Dolphy, but I mean, bass clarinet. <laughs> so I rent him a bass clarinet. I rent him a trombone. I buy him $150 sax through, you know, uh, Amazon. I rent him a flute. We're going, every time they see me at AMRO, because my kid wants to play all these things. Yeah. Because he was watching Einstein, little Einstein early on when he's about three years old and they have a thing where it's like the, the voices of the orchestra. And he makes, he says, come on, watch, look, horns, <laughs> brass. <laughs> Obviously, something was calling to him even then. But to think of that all of this musical stuff was supercharged by Guitar Hero 3. Yeah. You know, video games are supposed to rot the brains of the youth, but here's my son, and it basically activated everything. And then we get him Terrell McGowan, trumpet, trumpet, uh, uh, a jazz trumpet player who is studying at the, uh, as a grad student in the Ole Miss Music Department to give him private trumpet lessons. And that just changes the whole ballgame. Hmm. And what Terrell... Terrell's African-American. Terrell is now a band assistant band director. Terrell plays jazz real well. I could not get my kid interested in jazz. No, Dad, I don't want to improvise. John Philip Sousa. Terrell says, you got to learn the Sousa, a Sousa march or two. My kid now, like, he does Sousa marches. Like, he can do all four, you know, he can do trombone. He can do the low trombone part wow. on the trombone. Now he has the, con the marching, whatever it's called. Today he gets a euphonium. But he turns out he's a, he was a prodigy on the trumpet. We had given back the trombone. My kid then says, after two years of trump trumpet lessons, Dad, I just, I'm not interested in trumpet. I want to be a trombone player. And by God, I went and got him a step up. He had a step up trumpet. I went and he'd gone to music camps. He was, as a ninth grader, lead trumpet player at Oxford High School. Hmm. As a ninth grader. Really can play. Trombone, he's even better. Wow. And now he gets the euphonium. So my life, apart from being mortgaged out the wazoo to Amro <laughs> Music, you know, <laughs> I, the, the one thing I've spoiled my son in is the matter of musical instruments because, you know, he's. I started playing the harmonica when I was a year older than he is now. So from my perspective, everything he does, and it's just amazing to to be in the presence of a a skilled like a skilled music. And he plays, by the way, he plays electric bass. Oh, he's wow. played electric bass with my group. He plays guitar. He said, "Here, Dad, I'm playing Brown Sugar." Doom, doom. I said, "That's that sounds the right right. What are you doing?" Well, I'm tuning doing the open tuning that Keith Richards does. Oh, so wow. it seems like there's no instrument except harmonica. He has zero interest in harmonica. <laughs> he said, Dad, I want, a, I want a high tension marching snare drum. This is a year and a half ago. I said, really? He goes, yeah, like in drum line, you know. Mm. Got him a high tension marching snare. One day he's playing something. I go, what the hell is that? I, he goes, well, it's the Blue Devils Flam. I said, okay, I know uh, he's talked about the Blue Devils, the band. I go, but what, I can't hear, you know, I... I I've been playing foot drums for 10 years. I can keep a pretty steady beat. I have some basic idea. What's that? He goes, well, it's a 21-8. Wow. And so that's <laughs> my life in contemporary Mississippi, which yeah. is to say, does race have anything to do with that narrative that I've just given you? Or is this, yeah. are we just struggling people looking at the gifts that we've been given and trying to honor those gifts? Uh, to me, it's really a lot more about the, the latter. Yeah. And, 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 if somebody were to tell me that John Philip Sousa is just grandiose, it's, it's that Western. I mean, I know that there's a whole woke movement in classical music mm -hmm. it, it, that shows up in a, in a range of ways. Yeah. And I know there are people who would even talk about music as though it, the, the Euro-American tradition is all, Susan McClary, the yeah. musicologist, will do sort of this all triumphalist kind of stuff. And I, I, You know, my kid, 
he's just, there's a gift put in somebody, and there are the people who help feed that, as Terrell did with his really wise suggestion. Yeah. You know? Um, you come from the classical world. You've been very nice about asking me to pour out my life. I, you know, <laughs> you must have some insights here about any of this stuff, but about maybe low brass. Let's start with what do we need to know? Do you play the euphonium, for example? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I play it like a, a, a yeah. little bit. I played it a little as a, as a kid. And then like now it's just mainly uh, tuba. Um, and yeah, man, I mean, for, for me, I... Like so, I I grew up listening to uh, hip hop and pop and like soul and so my I'm so I guess taking it way way back. Yeah, my yeah, um, yeah. parents are, um, so they came to the to U.S. in the mid '80s. Uh, they're both Nigerian, so I'm a first gen kid myself. Okay. And um, I, I say that because like musically, I never really or culturally really, I never felt like I quite fit in with like uh, uh, the African-American kids in, in my area um, or obviously like the white kids or, or anyone else. So I just listened to all genres and watched mm. all sorts of movies and was into all sorts of styles because I was like, well, I mean, like if I don't fit into anyone like 100 percent, then I may as well just like enjoy everything, whatever. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and how did the tuba, like what did the tuba call to you or did you end up there from having tried other brass? I mean, how did, yeah, how did you Yeah. So it, it was like, um, uh, so I chose, I chose the trombone because a, a lot of the, the kids in my friend group and like this girl I had a crush on when it was time to like choose, um, instruments in fourth grade, like a lot of them were just in that brass like group of, of, of kids. And I think that was just also more my like personality. Like a lot of the like straight A, like just very buttoned up kids went in the strings and woodwind section. I, I just, it just wasn't my personality either. And yeah. of course, like, I think the way I was, I was just like, yeah, man, like the trombone's the one that like you just slide up and down, like it's hilarious. And, um, so that's where I started off and, um, it was pretty, it was fun. It was pretty good. Like I, I, it was, um, um, I stuck with it just because like more importantly, um, you know, like whatever instrument it is that you play is, it's really just, it's a, just a vehicle to make music. So yeah, like yeah. It, it was, um, I was a, also the kind of kid too, like where, um, I, I would, uh, maybe get bored of, of toys pretty easily. And like, I, when I brought home my, my, was bringing home my trombone, uh, my, my parents, like they, they didn't really like buy my like excitement into it just because you know all the other things i had tried before maybe i'd stick with it for like a couple months and so um you know i I was like i would uh 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 you know play it a bunch i was like i was listening to to albums and stuff and playing by ear and like then so i was playing so what that that does like lasted three four years of playing i was pretty good and then the uh, band I was in, um, the wind band I was in, like the the director of it came in and he was saying like, uh, he was actually asking it as a joke. Like he was like, uh, we can't find a kid in the district that like plays tuba and it can also make it to these Saturday rehearsals. So like, does yeah. anyone just like want to switch to tuba? And like, I just, I just raised my hand. I was just like, okay, fine. Like, like, like whatever. And um, be, because he played, so because he played tuba, and I, I really liked his sound. And I was just like, okay, like, I mean, I, the reference that I have of it sounds really, really good. 
and um, just ended up liking it so much. And it was, I was also like, I didn't do well uh, academically. I got in trouble a lot as a kid. So like psychologically speaking, I think having that one thing where like I was standing out in a positive way, it's kind of a no brainer. It's like why I would like go down that route. And, um, and then I guess classical, like why came classical? Cause again, like I mentioned earlier, I was listening to all these, um, genres. And then when I started listening to, uh, classical music and I'll, I'll narrow it down really to like the romantic symphonic era. Um, it, it sounded, I like realized I was like, man, like it sounds like all the other genres like comes from this thing. Like I, as I was listening to it, I was just like, man, like this, this has everything in it. Like there would, it would go in and out of moments where it's really pretty. It's really sad. It's really rhythmic or just, you know, and, and, um, still till this day, like, like I'll, uh, cause I'm, I'm still, you know, very much like I practice my classical excerpts every single day and etudes and all that. And, um, mm-hmm. so it's, it's, it's like, a it's, it's, it's one of those things that like, when you become aware of how awesome the music is, it's just really hard to walk away from. Um, it, it, you know, it, it's so funny. And I was never moved. I mean, I remember we, I had like a Captain Kangaroo record where he did Peter and the Wolf. You know, that's the sum total. I, I classical music. I mean, my grandparents took me to the New York Philharmonic a couple of times and to the New York Opera once or twice. And I'd always fall asleep. For me, I needed the groove. And the moment I had the groove and the moment the songs kind of spoke to me or grabbed my body in that way. So it's funny. And, and, and my kid is, he's much more into the, I mean, he likes the groove, but he's, he, he, he's, he, well, he likes the marching stuff. So he may be yeah. a marching band guy, you yeah. know, the Marine band. Yeah. Yeah, um, no, because it's, it's, it's uh, yeah. you know, because at the time, like, um, so I, I think my, my, my first real orchestral experience was um, uh, signing up for the youth orchestra at the preparatory in, in Baltimore, uh, Peabody Preparatory. And, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they were playing uh, ch- the Tchaik- Tchaikovsky's Fifth, and, mm. um, which is like, you know, it's a classic in, in, the, in, the, in that world. And um, it was just so, it was just so pretty to me in a way that like, I just couldn't like, um, cause I, I'm really big on, I, I think like, I, I love like watching movies and then like going back and, and trying to understand like the subtleties that like make it re- like a really, really great film. And yeah, I think yeah. with, with classical music, it's, it's more so that like, it's less about like the genre and more so that there are so, there's so much more revision you can do in that genre and where you notice a new subtlety or a new thing that then like changes like how you experience it the next time so it's just that i think i think that's like the fundamentals behind my interest in is that it's just so deep that once you think like you know it really well and then you like notice this thing then it's like you go back and 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 now it's new again yeah but I think, you know, so, but some people might say, well, you could, you could play any instrument that's in the score and have that feeling. So why the tuba? I remember my, my son starting on tuba. I mean, mm-hmm. that was his first band instrument. And he seemed to really want it because it was big and low and powerful. Yeah. And then eventually he wanted much more flash. Yeah. So for him, the trumpet was the flash, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's, that's, I think, you know, why, why we choose a given instrument 
is an interesting question. Um, yeah, it's I, it's it's uh, it's it's I think it's a it's a it's a great question, and um, it's weird because I I enjoy the music so much that it, I kind of realized it was like, man, whatever it is that wh whatever like vehicle is going to get me on this stage while this music is happening i don't really mm. care what it is like i just need to be on the stage while it's happening i mean even if like i i you know blew my lip face out or something i couldn't play again and it's like the only way i could like be on that stage um in the future would be being like a part of the stage crew like yeah. it, it was it was like how can i just be a part of what's happening and it just so happened that tuba was uh, the thing that I felt like would get me closest to just being on that stage, like while that music is being made. Yeah, it's you're raising such an interesting point because you know in this world of social media, um, a lot we've sort of outsourced or we've we've sort of abstracted uh, an element of social life from actual social life, which yeah. is people together in a room, right? Yeah. And, you know, and I'd like to believe that there, there will always be room for actual parties where, where there's some music and maybe something to drink and people are dancing a little bit and they're listening and they're chattering really loud and the, the release of energy. People want to be part. You said you want to be part of something. And if there's an aesthetic dimension to it, you know, it's, it's both social and it's aesthetic. It's like it's this beautiful thing that you and a bunch of other people are bodying forth. Yeah. And I feel the same way. I think anybody who's in a band of some sort, it's like... The, when the three of you or the five of you or the hundred of you are producing this sound or the two of you, you know, it's this thing you're making and, and, and there's nothing more, for, from my perspective, there's nothing more enlivening than also seeing it, it, in a sense, contaminate maybe other people. It sort of convey itself to and animate other people. And so I love the sort of live music thing, which is part of what's made this last year so crazy. Yeah. Right. The, the social distancing. Yeah. I mean, we, we've tried here. We are on Zoom. So we've learned a few things and it's really Zoom's really cool for certain things like this. Yeah. Um, but it's not particularly good for live music, really. And what live music experienced in person does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and, and, and you know, uh, uh, I guess kind of closing out on 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 the tuba thing, it was then later on where I realized um, that so much of what uh, the tuba specifically demands was uh, it was it was everything that I, I felt like I was uh, weak in as uh, a kid growing up in that like um, you know again I, like I was I was getting in trouble and, and wasn't really like you know I wasn't getting good grades and and I was like able to like I was always a, a talker and like I would I would talk myself out of a lot of stuff and mm. like um you know I, I would I would I would be able to basically like just maneuver you know in and out of stuff uh and um being that the orchestra only has one tuba it was one of the outlets in my life where it's like man I can't cheat that in any way like no. If the tuba yeah. messes up, like it's it's me because <laughs> there, there's there's twenty violins on the stage, there's fifteen of this, five of this, but there's only one me. And like the con conductor's like, hey, like tuba, um, uh, fix this. Like there's no one I can look at. There's no way I could like get get myself out of that thing. And um, like it, like through that, I would say I then learned like just accountability on a fundamental level. And I get you. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it, it's just it's um, and then I and then also I guess uh, the the idea of being 
um, a foundation and the idea of being support. I, I really like too. Mm, um, mm. And 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 Tuba kind of represents you're anchoring. You're kind of anchoring yeah, things. Yeah, right? and and, and it's a it's yeah. a presence thing too. In that like um, it might not to the maybe someone in the audience. Or whatever it's it's one of those things where even as a person i like that presence and where that like you might not appreciate it you know actively while it is there or even notice it but then when it's absent you realize you, you realize it's absence you realize yeah, that yeah. how important it is once it's gone and um there, there's something there's something so cool about like knowing that you're not going to get this like praise when you're doing your job 100% but that when you're you're not doing well that you know it then everyone notices and there's just there's something about that for some reason I, I just I really enjoy it because you're not the star of you're not the star in the room but then when you're absent it's like man like we need this like where did it go and and I don't know I, I really like that there's something you know it's funny the, the other thing that I, if I said that that my experience as a competitive masters distance runner and uh, boxing on TV and making music all have something in common. Uh, I would call basically your asses on the line. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm a pacifist, but I love watching boxing because there is something about a championship bout when you realize all of a sudden it's all come down. You can train all you want. Yeah. And there's something about being, a, when I was able to run, I, my back won't let me really do that, but for years I just love the, the 5K, 10K half marathon thing where you're just all the training that you've put in, and suddenly there you are. And with music too. Yeah. If a group, especially if a group is moving up, so suddenly you're on a bigger stage in front of a whole lot of people where it counts. And there's something about, it demands a kind of excellence and a kind of poise that I've always liked that challenge. Yeah. That the, the, you know, and so it means breaking through. I think any of us who become performers have have to, had to break through a whole lot of stage fright. Some people don't have stage fright. I'm not sure my son actually has has much, um, but I always did, and it was true as being a college lecturer is the same sort of thing. You know, how do you walk into that room in front of all those people? How do you do that TED talk? How yeah. do you? And and it's a, it's an element of musicianship, this, which the sort of performing side of musicianship. But I when I hear you talk about that I think your ass is on the line in a sense. You, you go out there and you kind of know that excellence is demanded of you. And it's wonderful to get to the place where you know you can deliver it. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean you don't have an edge, but it just means, yeah, I can do this. Yeah. And it's going to be fun to do this. And it's going to feel good to do this. Absolutely. You know? yeah. yeah. And and it's just, it's, it's, uh, I love that. And, 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 and like your comment on um, mm -hmm. uh, stage fright and, and, everything like it's uh um I, i've said this on other episodes and that like one of the 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 gifts about being hyper focused on on something is that you're learning about yourself so much and like it, it was yeah. one of those things where I, like for me the the stage fright reduced so much when i realized that um before going out into a, a show that i was I was, I was taking the potential of what was about to happen way too personally, and mm. I think I, in, in like in many ways, there there's so many situations where thinking of yourself as a provider 
is so much is better for you than than thinking about like how you are receiving that thing and it just it really helps to just like try to genuinely say I want to give these people a good performance. That's so amazing. I came up with exactly the same thing. Like, 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 isn't it amazing that I should end up here with the chance to give people yes. something? Yeah. Like, I'm not dead. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I, I'm, I, I, could, I could be underground. Yeah. Isn't it great that I'm alive and a little fearful? Yeah. And being blessed with the chance to give people something. And yes, the moment you, as opposed to, they're going to judge me. Yeah. Because then that's ego. It's ego. Mm-hmm. Even though it's like you're insecure, but it's an ego-focused thing. The moment you say, God, I'm so lucky to be put in this place to get to share something with people yeah. and it sounds like you, you came to the same conclusion yeah it's 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 almost like that like excitement of um uh i don't know maybe like you cooked something and like you're you're just like you're excited to like watch that person like take the first bite of the thing that you you cooked and, and you're genuinely like just like man like i hope this person likes this thing that I just pulled out the oven and, and it's, yeah, it's that's yeah. the kind of energy I try to like go on stage with where it's just like, man, just, you're just, you're breaking bread with people and your bread just happens to be music. And yes, it's your career. It's very um, important, but I guess right. like a, you know, another thing on this is just, it's just, it helps because one, it, it reminds you that yet you are providing something for others and it just, it makes it, it makes the experience lighter and it, and it brings you yeah. into, yeah. you know, cause I, I think people like try to be like, okay, you gotta be, I gotta be more present. I gotta be this or that. But in a way I feel like, I feel like the, the thinking of yourself as a pro- provider, I think all that other stuff comes because you're just in that moment of like, like, I just, I need to do this thing now. And I hope that these people receive it well. And I think it takes care of that, like presentness that we all try to directly go for. Um, and it, yeah, it, it's just that that's what helped, um, helped yeah. me a lot just before going on stage. Yeah. Yeah. It's an existential challenge, but I, I do think, I think also just the more you do it, the more, you know, breaking through for anybody who's listening to this, who's sort of like, gosh, I wish I didn't have stage fright. The more you do it, the more it kind of, it's like cognitive behavioral therapy in a sense. You kind of just get that to that overload moment and, and keep going and yeah. just keep. And, and of course, that's why it's good to remember that that old sort of new age idea that that um, it's not about is that brave people aren't people who don't feel fear. Yeah. Brave people feel fear and move forward anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But it's but it's not as though the fear suddenly, oh, my God, I'm not up to it. It's like, no, actually, a little bit of edge is a good thing. Yeah. Um, and reframing it. I I, I, uh, I love I love thinking about it's a, it's a, it's something that I took by the way from Pema Chodron and her book, When Things Fall Apart: Heart Advice for Difficult Times, which I, a friend of mine gave to me when I had just been released from the hospital back in two thousand with a sort of minor heart attack, in a sort of shocking moment in my in my own biography, and and she she talks about Buddhist monks who go and used to meditate in graveyards. It's like they want to get familiar, they want to get intimate with death, and I think. If you can reframe, if you're afraid, you can go, well, look, one alternative was that I would have been killed years ago and never had a chance to get to this damn moment and be afraid. (laughs) You know, isn't it great I didn't die back then? And that that, that humor, that all that does is sort of undo the ego investment a little bit. And suddenly it's like, yeah, maybe what you said, maybe not take it quite so lighten up a little bit on it. 
yeah. not quite so serious. No, yeah. you, I, I love that, man. And and yeah. and it, of course, like on the topic of uh, stage fright and just like I guess performance anxiety. This is something that scientists and so many people have spent so. You, you, we can go so deep on this, but but mm-hmm. um, you know, a, a, I, I guess another thing in that. Um, uh, arena, there's, there's t- t- probably two things in that, like, w- one, it also really helped when um, there, it, there's, it's, it's a balance of extremes of understanding that, like, this thing is very, very, very significant to me, and it's very important to me. And then, like, for the sake of being humbled, so that you can go out there and do that thing, it, it also understanding that in the grand scheme of just like the world and the universe that yeah. like you're we're, we're, I'm also real like realizing I'm also overestimating like my importance right now and like right, like right. like relax because like you could go like you, you could go I could go out there and like throw my tuba out the window and you know for that next day or two it'd be the talk of the town but then it's like move on and, and right 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 you know so so yeah. like kind of like creating those extreme scenarios where it's like okay what if the worst thing happened you st- it still wouldn't be like <laughs> the end of the world and then probably the 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 second one um yeah being i guess that um almost the the, the butterflies the 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 heart racing um I then started to feel fortunate that there was something that I'm doing that I care this deeply about. Yes, yes, yes. And you know, like, 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 I know that not everyone gets this feeling when they're about to go to work or do this thing. And it's like, man, like, to have this, and and it's almost, it's it's yeah. weird, almost like a like an adrenaline chaser in in the mm-hmm. sense that like, I, I, even like that five ten minutes before going on, whether it's an audition or something, and just like being like, man, like you can practice all day, you can simulate it, but it's almost cool that that specific feeling you cannot recreate. It, no. It, yeah. So, yeah. And I like, yeah, I used, I used to just go showtime. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like, well, it doesn't hurt to be a little ballsy, you know, yeah. I mean, why not? So, you know, let's go and let's go and do what we do. Um, that's, I love it. This is fascinating. And I love, I love talking about this stuff. I realize I have not going on for a long time and I haven't actually told the one last little bit of the story that is the Sir Rod part of the continuing Satan and Adam saga and I need you have the CD so you you know yeah but I have to tell people that because it's it's so unexpected and so and yet so right that it really to me feels like there's something uh, miraculous about it so if I could take your audience Imagine that I, I played with this Sterling McGee guy from 86 through 98, and then he, has a, he disappears with a nervous breakdown, and I have a heart attack. We end up pulling it back together. By 2018, we've played a, a whole series of return gigs, and in 2018, we actually played f- for the last time together at, at the Tribeca Film Festival. And then this documentary is out there, and in June of 2019, for the next 24 months, Satan and Adam is on Netflix. And in December of 2019, six months after it gets on Netflix, I get a, an email from somebody named Rod Patterson who says, I'm Mr. Satan's nephew. I saw wow. the documentary and I love it. And why don't we get, I can sing my uncle's song. I can sing those Satan and Adam songs. Why don't we get together and maybe do a little tribute thing, do a recorded demo and put together a few gigs. And I thought, well, can he play with 
you know, a drummer who plays harp and a guitar player, we're, it's, an, it's a difficult thing. How much live music experience? Rod turned out to be um, somebody who was, Rod Patterson, as Sir Rod, that was sort of his stage name, 55 years old, he's a little younger than us, um, than than me and the guitar player, has been an anti-bullying activist, kind of, and does these presentations at schools in Atlanta and and elsewhere. Um, And for the last 10 years, he's been doing an act where it began as kind of a karaoke act, where he was dancing and lip-syncing to the the greatest hits of James Brown, Michael Jackson, Sam Cooke, and Ray Charles. Yeah. Five years ago, he began, um, somebody heard him singing, not just lip syncing, and said, you actually have a good voice. And so for the last five years, he's been doing it that way. Uh-huh. And he's a guy who was winning dance competitions in his teens doing sort of Michael Jackson moonwalks and stuff. That makes for an interesting mix. We got together in January of 2020, and it was like magic. He walks in. I've never, we've never met each other. And it was like brothers. And I'm trying to figure out how did this happen? And what we realized was four years before I started playing with Sterling McGee in Harlem on the street, he was living with Rod and Rod's mom, who was Sterling's sister. So for two years, between 80 and 82, this, this, young, this teenager is living with Mr. Satan, and he was calling himself Mr. Satan at that point. He had that he had had that change, had a kind of a breakdown then that led him. He, but he was playing house parties in Rod's house, so that, so we're basically we realized that we're. I mean, it's like a family thing. Yeah. It's like we both had the same mentor, in a sense, um, and so we get together in the studio, and he's doing. He's been woodshedding with the Satan and Adam CDs doubling his uncle's voice and sort of finding his own voice relative to it. And it was absolutely uncanny. It was, things never go like best case scenario in the studio. And Mm. they went best case scenario. And we had seven or eight cuts within two days. We got together for a second session. He he added up writing the lyrics to what became the title song the day before that second session in 90 minutes. He tells people it was like, I send him some music and said, here's this four chord vamp one flat three four flat six uh, you know it's a it's see what you can do with it and and he he wrote an amazing song that we recorded aren't the next time and then covid comes along and we don't play for 15 months mm. we saw each other at sterling's funeral in the fall of 2020 september of 2020 but then not until like april of this year did we get together again he he drove from atlanta to oxford we went and played on the street in Clarksdale during the Juke Joint Festival, had an incredible time. It was like, and and so we were basically an act that had an album, but had not really had any live performing experience. Yeah. And suddenly we've now done two tours, and it's obvious this is the next thing. And and there's a kind of, um, it's beloved community all over again. It's really, it's crazy. But wow. there we are. We're like, we're of a shared purpose that if you can't, you have to, you're lucky when that comes into your life once, yeah. but now I'm having it a second time, and we're honoring our, you know, shared mentor and his uncle, and it's sort of wild. Yeah, yeah, um, and I, yeah. I love that that the the comment you said um, about you know how things um, it's it's very rare for it to be a hundred percent there um, in the studio, and and not even just the studio. I think in a lot of uh, yeah. musical collaborations because there's so many elements that um you know might not like like it, it could be um you know the, the chemistry musically or it could be that like everything is fine musically but then maybe there's like something 
pr- professionally, but you know, professionalism that maybe is a little off or wh- whatever. It could be right, other right, things. Right. So there's so many elements in where like you know everything could be A plus, but this one thing. But then when it when it's just all working, um, yeah. that, that that's that it's just so rare. I think in in any music so musical scenario and um that that that's awesome man and and it's great yeah. that you get to have that um experience um and i i know we're we're kind of uh uh getting on the tail end of our uh, our time here and i, I just want to yeah. make sure i ask you this before we we mm-hmm. end but um man this this is you, you've done so much uh in your life and in, in, in your career and I, I can tell you the type of person i don't want to ask like Oh, so what's next for you in your your career? But it, it's it's so I think maybe a, a better question is is like um, what 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 uh, uh, like w- with your life? What what is it? Are there are there any things that you're anything you're just trying to experience more or get new mm. experiences in, whether personally or professional like like in 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 every way what what is left for for you and what would you that's like good. to do yeah it's a, you know I, I sometimes ask myself sort of what remains undone you know and i'm yeah. 63 so that hopefully i'll have a I mean, my, my father died at 67 but i of pancreatic cancer but i don't i'm not somebody who lives assuming that i'm i'm faded that way my mom is 92 and a half wow. and shows no signs of of diminished energy at all so i'm i'm liable to to have a, a bit more time. Of course, one never knows. But I would say, you know, I've traveled a lot in in America. I've been to uh, 45 or 46 of the 50 states just as part of the mu- music stuff uh, one, one way or another. So, But I'd like to see the remainder. And, I, and I've traveled a lot in Europe, but I've never been anywhere in Asia, never been to South America, been to Australia once, but never been. So there's a large part of the world I haven't seen. Mm. And I happen to... Years ago, I was a, uh, 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 I played some some serious competitive table tennis. So China, you know, or Sweden. I haven't been to Sweden, but China would be nice to get to at some point. I know that they take it seriously over there. Um, I, but I want to see the, and that sounds like a trivial kind of thing. I want to see more of the world. Hmm. And so I'm, my wife and I, you know, when retirement comes, I think what we're saying right now is we don't want to wait until retirement. You don't want to wait till you get too old to be mobile. Yeah. Um, but I would say, so that's one thing is simply traveling a little bit more and seeing how people are doing it. I, as far as music goes, I want to play this Surad and the Blues Doctors thing out and really see where it goes yeah. because I think, I think we're going to go somewhere. Um, although it may just be, into, we might become a corporate act, you know, or a college <laughs> act rather than a straight up blues act. And I don't know if, but we want to get to, I want to get to, to England or the UK or the UK or Europe once, at least once with it. And maybe quite a bit further than that. What question is like what what book to write? And I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've written I've written a long memoir and I and um, and I have not published it. It's and I don't. I kind of need to wait until my mom's gone before I do that for complicated reasons. Mm-hmm. So that's a weird thing to to know you've that maybe the the, the the best book I've written is one that I, I can't publish for a while. Wow. Um, so it's strange to say, and I, I'll just, I'll leave it at that and not say any more about that. But, but clearly there, there must be something else that, that I, that I need to write. And I'm, I'm looking for it right now. I'm not sure at all that it's going to be a blues book. Hmm. Um, I'm really not sure. Yeah. I, um, 
You ever, so, you ever thought of, of, uh, of um, like maybe similar uh, topics, but in a different way, like whether like for, for kids or fiction, or do you just have like a, a very like certain style of, of writing? Well, the one thing I haven't done, of course, is a blues harmonica instructional book. I yeah. just sort of put it all out there in, 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 on a, I have a website called Modern Blues Harmonica and on my YouTube channels. There are people who said I should do that, but somehow I don't think so. Um, I should have a better answer for you than I do. And it's interesting. I, I think one way of understanding it is that there, every life has periods. I wouldn't call them fallow periods exactly, but they're periods where you've sort of done what you were supposed to do in certain realms for a while. And so you're, you're I mean, I'm reading trying to figure out the next thing. I, I would say there's a, I've been terrifically moved. I, over the last year, one thing that's happened to me, interestingly enough, is in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder and, and the sort of public response, I found myself pushing back a little bit against the need for what I would call revolutionary change in America mm. for complicated reasons. Um, partly because I think it tends to reify race in certain kinds of ways and see people first through that. And my life is tr in my life, I've tried, and, and even my, the act that I'm in now, we're sort of, we're trying to get a little bit beyond that and pull people together, come together. Um, so it led me to go and, and, and listen to a lot of people and, and do a lot of reading. And one of the books I read that really moved me profoundly was Thomas Chatterton Williams' book, which I've got on my desk here, called uh, Self-Portrait in Black and White, Unlearning Race. Um, and so I, I, I think and I had in mind a book that would be essays about some of the most more important books that are out there now, including Ta-Nehisi Coates, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me. Yeah. Um, there's something very, there's something fascinating about that, about that book. Um, I don't know if, if you're familiar with it. Certainly many of your readers. I just I pulled it out to remind myself. Oh, yes. Um, it's, it's a book, obviously, that made a terrific impact. And one of the, the central uh, figures in it is somebody that he went to Howard with who ends up dying. Um, and I, uh, who is sort of, for him, the epitome of um, kind of the upward promise of contemporary blackness. A kind of like, I can, this is a guy who had it all. And it was in, and he was, he had everything was coming to him yeah. and he ended up dying. What Coates never tells you is that, the, and it, Coates talks about, I think, the person who killed him, who was a, an undercover agent who happened to be African-American, was an undercover agent who mistook his friend as a drug dealer. So it, it kind of crystallizes the kind of heartbreak mm. of contemporary life for Coates. What he never tells you is that that undercover agent was also like him and like the friend of his who died, was a Howard undergrad who had not graduated from Howard, but had gone to Howard. Wow. There's a tra and it's just never comes up, but that's the truth. And I thought that needs to be written about it. It means that there's a very, it's, so it's partly about the, it's a Howard story. It's about that, you know, it's about that institution. But I thought, why doesn't he tell us that? How would it complicate the story? And so I'm interested in, wow. in the facts that would complicate the story. Yeah. Um, and I need to go and research a little bit more to understand this guy. But when I found out that that fact about him, which I didn't know, um, it just, it stunned me. I thought, and he doesn't, why does Coase not tell us that? <laughs> um, because it makes it a more complex story that's a little less 
assimilable into the worldview that he's trying to communicate. It's, it's, it's equally tragic. In some ways, it's more tragic. Yeah. But, it, but, it, but instead, what he does is, is sort of extrude this guy rather than saying, you know, he too is part of the Howard family. And it, isn't it heartbreaking that this is what the three, how the three of us ended up interacting? Yeah. Is he killed my best friend? Yeah. And, you know, right for, for, and for a reason that shouldn't have happened. Anyway, so that's an example. That's just a touchstone of one of the kinds of moments that I've noticed um, Thomas Chatterton Williams' book is all about a, a man who is the product of a black Southern-born father and a pure white mom, all Nordic extraction, who bring up their kids in suburban New Jersey, not far from me. Tom, so Thomas Chatterton Williams is biracial and, you know, he's my homeboy in a sense. He's sort of from the next county over from where I grew up, so mm. I can understand that. And he ends up marrying a French woman, and the book, be- the, his memoir begins with him being handed his child, his firstborn child, and she's a blonde girl. Wow. And he's saying, what have I done? And I'm fa- those, so those moments, too, are, are really very contemporary. We're sort of making sense of the color line and the, the, the after image of the color line and, and the way it's wrought so much damage in American culture. But it's also, I mean, we come, to, we come together and, 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 and create new narratives. And, and we're all just wrestling with that. I think that's what happened last summer led me to think a lot more yeah. about that kind of thing. So, wow. Oh, yeah. man. I mean, that, that, it, it's, that's so awesome. And, and it sounds mm-hmm. like, like you're really you're super close to, um, uh, I guess, wh- whatever it is that you're, you're going to create. It sounds like you're very, very close to like finding like the exact way to do it and, and things to, to focus on. And um, you know, and it's funny because I, I think even earlier you were just saying like, you know, I, I wish I had a, a, a better answer, but it, it, I mean, that in itself, I think is actually a great answer in that even people Thanks. listening can like, um, like I, I, this sounds very cheesy, but it's, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, it's actually totally fine to not have that answer, um, like on command and things might change. Like, who knows? Like I, yeah, we might talk tomorrow. <laughs> and you decide yeah. to be like a pastry chef, who knows, you know? So, who knows? Who knows? yeah, but, um, yeah. man, wow. I mean, I, I know where, so we're, we're at the end here and, um, yeah. man, you're, I think you're one of those guys that, that I can tell you, you have so many experiences, so many things you've done that to really get your whole story would require like a part two, three, and four. <laughs> when, <laughs> but, I, when I write this book, get me back on your, get me back oh, on your 100 three, three years down the line. Yeah, right? yeah, man. Yeah. Um, okay. But seriously, I because I know you're 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 very busy, and and you know we set this uh, up like like in in way in advance, and and so I, I'm really just thankful that you made the time to to come on and and, and talk. Well, thank you for, for making the space and, and, for, and for sharing some of your story, too, from the low brass world, the tuba world. Yeah. Um, and, and I really enjoyed this. Th- thanks. You know, I think we need spaces where we can just all come and talk and talk at length and talk fearlessly and, and just pull things out of each other that, that help us know each other better. You know? Yeah. Oh, man. So, yeah. Honor's all mine. And um, yeah, to people listening. Uh, thank you if you, you know, made it all the way to, to the end. And uh, yeah, this is a song called Life and we're out. Peace.